1: and management, with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are the key strategic priorities for the Defense Health Agency, DHA? How is DHA working to create a more integrated military health system? And what are some of the key successes and accomplishments for DHA over the last four years? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency, DHA. General Place, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you.
2: Well thanks for having me. It's a thrill for me to to be back on your show um, talking about the agency, evolutions thereof, great accomplishments, things in the future, all those sorts of things. So thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Looking forward to it. With my guests, I usually like to give sort of set some context for our audience, and that is what's the mission of the Defense Health Agency, DHA? And as you said, how has it evolved say, during your
2: tenure? Well, yeah, it's multifactorial, but the, the major elements of the mission of the Defense Health Agency is – supporting the health of the Department of Defense, and specifically, most importantly, the health of our service members. So all 2.1 million of our active duty National Guard and Reserve forces to to do everything that we can to keep them as healthy as possible so they can execute any mission that the America Department of Defense, et cetera, asks them to do. Secondarily, our mission is to have a, a ready medical force. In other words, to make sure that our medical team both obtains and then maintains or sustains their individual and team-based medical competencies. Are they ready to do whatever we want them to do in a a sort of stateside or what we call an installation or garrison environment? And are they ready individually and as teams to be medical units in the operational world to support troops in, in position or troops in conflict or troops in combat, wherever that might be, anywhere around the world. And then for everybody, whether that's family members or our retirees or retiree family members, we have a benefit program. Uh, uh, We're a a payer of sorts with the TRICARE health plan. Mm -hmm. So we act sort of like an insurance company for everyone who's a beneficiary of our system. And then we support all that with a number of other functions, the education and training system. We have our own education campus, perhaps we'll get into um, we have a public health system. We essentially act like that county public health department for all of the installations that we have uh, around the world. And we have a pretty robust research and development uh, uh, program that, because we have military specific requirements, we turn that research into acquisition programs so that we can have the, the right sorts of equipment to support our medical teams wherever they might be. So that's that's the goal, that's the portfolio, that's what we do in military medicine.
1: Uh, you know, and you kind of hinted there, sir, around the organization of DHA. I was kind of get, get get a little deeper into that. Uh, maybe give us a sense of your overall budget, your workforce composition and size, and, and again, geographical operational footprint for DHA.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. The, most of what we have is in the United States, but, but when I say most, I'd be guessing at the exact percentages, but, but two-thirds, three-fourths, something like that is somewhere in the United States, the continental United States. But that also means fully— uh, a quarter or maybe as much as a third of our healthcare delivery part of the organization is located outside of the United States. We're, we're organized into uh, 20 direct reporting markets. A uh, uh, direct reporting market is a confined geographical area, perhaps a diameter of, I don't know, 50 miles to 70 miles. So all of our military-specific medical centers, hospitals, and clinics, et cetera, we have about 20 of the direct reporting markets. We've got another a little bit more than 15 small markets and some clinics that are standalone by themselves. So that's how we're organized from a a healthcare delivery. But in addition to that, we have our own medical education and training campus where we we do lots and lots of education systems. We have our own public health organization, centrally located mostly in the greater DC area, but with outposts uh, located around the world. We have... uh, our own research and development team, most of it again here in the DC area, but integrated with uh, academic partners and and corporations that we have cooperative research and development agreements with. We have our own health IT system, we have our own headquarters support, et cetera, et cetera. And to do all that, it takes a staff of somewhere between 130 and 140,000 people that includes uniformed service members, that includes uh, GS civilians, it includes contractors, uh, it includes volunteers, there's a whole bevy of folks who are doing the work all paid for by the taxpayers at the tune of about 55 billion dollars in fiscal year 2022.
1: Well thanks i mean that's very helpful to get the mission of your organization and its operational components and the uh, but now i want to switch gears and talk about your your role and you know i kind of uh, crafted my question here about what are your top say three responsibilities as the director of the defense health agency.
2: Yeah, so the number one priority always is and will be the readiness of the force. So the 1.3 million active duty, in particular, are they medically ready to go anywhere the department or the, the the president asks them to go when we need them to go? So readiness of the force is the number one priority and will continue to be the number one priority. But because our goal in the Department of Defense is to be a traveling team, right? The last thing that we want is conflict or war inside the United States. That means that we have to have medical teammates who are prepared to go anywhere that our our combat arms brothers and sisters, in the air, on the land, on the water, under the water, anywhere that they go, do we have medical teammates to accompany them? So the readiness of the medical force, are they medically ready themselves? And then are they ready to do their medical jobs individually and collectively? Will always be job 1A or job two, depending on how you look at the priorities. And then uh, priority number three then is the healthcare benefit in law from the Congress for everyone in uniform, all of their beneficiaries, so their family members, and then all who've achieved a retirement from the Department of Defense to include their families. How well are we handling this this medical benefit program that supports that whole uh, continuum of almost 10 million beneficiaries? That's priority number three.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, when you think about that, uh, those responsibilities, I was wondering, perhaps you could outline for us some of the most pressing management and operational challenges, or opportunities as some like to call them, that you faced in your position, and, and how have you sought to address those opportunities and challenges?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for that question. <laughs> perhaps the, the most difficult question you've asked so far. Because, I mean, when it comes to healthcare, the world is yeah. an ever-evolving Place So the things that I thought I was going to do when I became mm. the director in September of 2019 um, were largely related to uh, both Department of Defense and congressionally mandated, right, law mandated transformation of the military health system. And, and largely what that meant is a merging of an Air Force medical system, a Navy medical system, and an Army medical system into a single system and a, and a transition plan, a transformational plan to do that over uh, perhaps a three or four year period uh, involving 700 give or take medical centers hospitals and clinics and bringing all that together so the the most complicated is probably that but then you know you throw in the the challenge of a global pandemic all at the same time and so some of that work certainly still continued as a as a significant priority of effort during the almost three and a half years that I was the, the DHA director, but some of it had to go on the, uh, a further back burner while pandemic work became the most important priority of any given day. And oh, by the way, the department um, about a decade or so ago agreed that we needed to transition from our, our legacy internally built electronic health record, electronic medical system into a commercial off-the-shelf system. We can talk a little bit more about that, but mm-hmm. to continue that during a transformation and to continue that during a pandemic was a, a pretty significant challenge. And then, I guess, probably finally, but at the time, certainly most importantly, using the the responsibilities of that merger, of bringing all of those systems together, that, that meant people were involved. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to give you a big number, and it's going to be an impressive number, but we need to think about it a little bit differently. How did we handle each individual as an individual? So here's the big number. Just a little bit more than 50,000 Department of the Army, Department of the Navy, and Department of the Air Force civilians transitioned to becoming Department of Defense civilians. The greatest movement of manpower in the Department of Defense since the creation of the Air Force in 1947. And so the number's huge, right? It's okay, you got all this. But not a single not a single employee could ever be made to feel like they're just a statistic, they're just a number. So individually managing that transition for every single one of them ultimately probably became the most interesting, pressing, and important problem in support of all those other things that I just mentioned.
1: Yeah, I, I, I hadn't anticipated that last item. That's interesting. So, sir, it kind of hints to the next question I had around um, what has surprised you most leading DHA over the last three-plus years?
2: Yeah, well, the answer I'd like to give is nothing, right? Because I'm so (laughs) omniscient that I I can think of all these things and not be surprised by anything. But I guess the the most surprising thing with an organization as large as this, with the responsibility as large as this, um, bureaucracy often becomes a challenge. So, so many things that you worry about and so many checks that you have to have before you ever do anything of purpose. I guess what surprised me the most is how quickly the agency has evolved from a largely supporting organization with primary responsibilities as uh, uh, managers of the TRICARE program to being way more than that and to be able to evolve uh, in how fast we can support things. Now, I don't mean to say that I think that we're perfect at it. I think there's still more things that we can do to become better in our supporting role for healthcare delivery, better in our supporting role at the, our education and training campus, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I'm both surprised and impressed with how quickly the staff considers what their responsibilities are and understands that the speed at which they work uh, is mostly relevant to those who are supporting. So the adaption, the adaptability, the flexibility, agility, et cetera, of the team to understand the change of their mission and and do that and be successful in it. Yeah, it's a wonderful insight.
1: So, so General Place, how does your experience and expertise as a surgeon inform your leadership approach? And are there any leadership lessons, which we kind of alluded to one in the surprise response, but uh, or principles that you'd like to share with us?
2: Yeah, well... One of the things about being a general surgeon, and in fact, one of the reasons I became a general surgeon is because it's, it's a lot more black and white. And what I mean by that is, y- you typically you operate or you don't operate. And if you're going to operate, you have to actually choose the procedure that you're going to use. So trying to take that concept, not that there's not shades of gray and levels of, of effort and support, et cetera, that go into leading a huge organization like this, But to understand that you do or do not, you take on the mission or you don't, but in order to do that, we have to effectively communicate our expectations and and how we think that's going to go. So the leadership principle I think that I'll talk about is the difference between intentions and actions. Mm. And often we measure ourselves by our intentions, and often we give ourselves a pass. Well, I meant to do that, and then I rationalize. Here's all the reasons that I couldn't. But then I, I judge others not by their intentions, but I judge them by their actions. So to me, it, it's been a, how do we understand all the, the ramifications of what we think to be decisions and those that we gave that directive to, and are we truly looking at at all the constraints that they have, such that we understand the difference between their intents and their actions and my intents as the director and my actions, and how can we become more direct in understanding constraints? so that when we're evaluating the work of our team, we're evaluating the work of our personal physician, we're evaluating the work of our system, do we better understand all the constraints and restraints that are in the system when we evaluate the effectiveness of it? So again, getting away from the, here's the leadership principle, getting away from the idea that I measure myself by my intentions and I measure everything else by the actions, that we come closer to the middle of of understanding how both fit together.
1: What are the Defense Health Agency's strategic priorities? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
0: To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency, DHA. Uh, I understand that DHA released its uh, FY2226 campaign plan, which you know provides a very chock full of information on how the agency will execute its healthcare mission. And, and so to that end, I was hoping you could outline for us the four key strategic priorities for leading DHA from today into the future, and how does this plan, more importantly, build on the successes... Of of the FY 21 plan, and its associated efforts.
2: Well, thank you for that. To me, that's the it's the foundation of of what the Defense Health Agency is an organization. So in order to be successful, you have to know what you're for. And the Defense Health Agency, the you know these four major priorities. This is what we're for. So the first is great outcomes, which means that process matters, but through that process, you better be delivering great outcomes. And by great outcomes, that means great clinical outcomes but it also means great administrative outcomes. Are we providing the administrative support that all elements need to lead then to those great clinical outcomes? And in order to make that, that happen, you have to understand what your organization is supposed to be providing those great outcomes for. So us, we're a military health system. So those great outcomes mean the readiness of the, of the military force, that we do everything that we can from a medical perspective to make sure that every service member has optimal time to do their job. And all those things that we learn as a system, as a military health system, we can apply those lessons toward the care of our family members or retirees, etc. But what we're really here for is the readiness of that force. And the second priority is the readiness of the medical force. So are we doing everything that we can to optimize the obtaining and sustaining of the currency and competency of our individual medical teammates and our medical teams? And if we're not doing a good job at that, where's our continuous process improvement capabilities to drive further improvements in that system? The third uh, priority is the satisfaction of our patients. And I don't mean necessarily the individual satisfaction of an individual clinical visit or a trip to the pharmacy or whatever it is. It's how do you think about the system? Is the system here for you? When you think about it, you say, boy, I'm so fortunate that I get my healthcare care in the military health system, or I get my health care at, uh, pick one of our, our clinics or hospitals or, or medical centers. Ultimately, our desire should be that, should any patient have a choice, that they want to choose our organization because we get them, we understand them. We drive our processes to make their life better and, and they know that we're here for them. And then finally, to accomplish all that, the staff have to be fulfilled. We've all got into healthcare and our particular specialty within healthcare for a particular reason. We wanted to make a difference using this tool or using this technique or being part of that team. But we stay in medicine because it provides us a sense of fulfillment that that what we do matters and that, that at the end of the day, we may be exhausted from it. But gosh, it was such a great day and I can't wait to go back and do it again. I can't wait to go back and work with the people that I'm just so fortunate to be able to work from. So those are the the four strategic priorities for our sense making. And then in order to accomplish it, we have uh, a series of strategic initiatives, and I'm not sure I want to get into all the details of them, but, but implement ready, reliable care. Are we successful as a high reliability organization? Improve patient outcomes. So not just the military service members that I mentioned, but all clinical outcomes for all of our beneficiaries. Are we optimizing the healthcare system? In other words, are we increasing the effectiveness And in so doing, making ourselves more efficient as an organization, is there value from all the work that we do? Are we sustaining the expeditionary medical skills? In other words, are we we making sure that every single medical specialist, clinical and administrative, that they are in the technical and tactical details of every single one of their specialties ready to go? Have we enhanced the development and growth of our own teammates, both military and civilian? Are we improving the headquarters in performance? Not just the clinical performance or not just the educational programs, but are we improving the way the headquarters actually supports all those functions? Are we getting the right information at the right place, at the right time, in the right format, so the best decisions can be can be made? So is our information system really doing everything that it needs to do? And finally, could we execute that transition and transformation and turn that, that transformation of the military health system into an organization of execution as opposed to an organization in, in uh, transition. And those are the, the strategic initiatives.
1: You know, so you mentioned, it's funny, you mentioned transformation and you know DHA has established a market-based structure to manage the hospitals and clinics. And, and I was hoping you would take some time to explain to us that structure and approach and you know, how does it seek to expand access and, and what are some of the benefits from going in this direction? And, and I know it's a multi-layered question, but I'm wondering with all that said, what lessons learned have you collected thus far? And are there any updates in terms of any new markets happening?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'll answer the first part last. There's no current plans okay. to change to new markets or, or transformation. We're really way more interested in the maturation of what we have. But as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the, the markets are multi-installations. So based on our enhanced multi-service market where there may be parts of Army installations or Navy installations, Air Force installations, Marine Corps installations, and in some cases, even Coast Guard installations. And rather than using an Army process on an Army installation or a Navy process, is how do we bring it together in that confined geographical area? So no matter where you go to the clinic or the hospital or the medical center, there's a standardized approach. And and how can we improve the effectiveness of the clinical staff that we have there? When is it the appropriate time to move patients around that that market wins the right time to move staff around that market, wins the right time to move other resources, equipment, supplies, etc. So we can optimize the care that's being delivered in it. Now, we started in the United States in large part because we thought if there was any challenges with it, then there's healthcare outside of the borders, outside the fences of our installation that we could use the partners that we already have as we're developing and maturing that market construct. Once, once here in the United States, in particular the continental United States, we had a pretty good idea of how that looks. Then we expanded it overseas, so in locations like uh, Guam or, or Hawaii uh, started after the initial United States. But then we moved into our large systems that we have in the Indo-PACOM area, such as Guam or South Korea, Japan. We moved into Europe and the CENTCOM area of operations, whether it be in Great Britain or Bahrain or Germany, Italy, etc., So we finally have gotten that whole system uh, across every single installation and every single healthcare facility that we have, but then the process of standardization. So where do we take the the best practices, the best processes that maybe in this area, this clinical area, this administrative area is a Navy process, or maybe on this particular area, it's an Army or an Air Force, et cetera, et cetera. But standardize those processes so that it's good for both the staff and our patients. I'll give you an example. If you're working in the emergency department, why would you want to learn a completely new system of working in an emergency department when you move from one installation to another? And even worse, if you're a patient, why would you think it's a good idea that the way that I enroll, or the way the pharmacy works, or the way that I get referred to the TRICARE network is different in different locations? So standardizing what we believe to be the best way of doing it and inculcating that standardized practice and measure the effectiveness of it across the entire footprint, the entire organization. And then by the way, once you know what your measures of performance or your measurements of effectiveness are, then when it comes time to innovate, you're innovating against the standard and you know whether or not the innovation is working. And that's kind of the phase that we're on right now. We're finally getting some good measurements of, of where we are with our current standardized administrative workflows, some of our standardized clinical workflows, and then turn it over to our subject matter experts who are actually doing the work in the organization and their ideas about what's the next great innovation to make the system better.
1: That's excellent perspective. Thanks for sharing that. So, sir, so you mentioned earlier that you, you came on board and took over the leadership of DHA in September of 2019. And and six months later on average, we, we, we had pa- the pandemic. And the pandemic defined the agency's value to DOD in general as a trusted partner, integrating uh, an integral partner in its uh, pandemic Response and you know where I'm going with this question is I, I was hoping you could highlight for us the the successful actions of DHA during the pandemic response and to what extent has DHA success in this area shown its operational value as a combat support agency?
2: That's an insightful question. I appreciate you asking it. In 2019, when I became the director, the organization had had only been around for six years or so. So as an organization, not the people, people are, are have been great and continue to be great, but a relatively immature organization. A lot of process work still needed to be done, uh, a lot of anxiety about how it's all going to work. So I'm going to get into trust at the end of this. But there's a series of things that the agency was asked to do. First was personal protective equipment. Uh, you probably remember at the time, you know, how do we protect people? What's the, the right gowns or masks or... Or gloves, or or what are all those things? So, as an organization, balance those supplies and equipment to the right place at the right time for the right people. The agency helped the services as the force providers staff uh, civilian hospitals with people, people who came out of the the hospitals and clinics that we're managing, both on our installations and off our installations. Our teammates were providing support to vaccination teams. So. Interacting with people, understanding their clinical histories, understanding their allergies, et cetera, and providing millions of doses of vaccines, considering thinking about, and then developing a COVID registry. So uh, much like in our support to the combatant commanders with our work in trauma, so we've developed the trauma registry, so we could better understand how well we're providing traumatic. Uh, medical care services to our, our our members in combat, use those same uh, expertise to develop a registry of the demographics and the treatment algorithms of each of our beneficiaries who are receiving care who are COVID positive, and then use that as a learning tool for yes, do this, don't do that, optimize this more uh, as a tool. Very early in the pandemic, we were given the mission to collect uh, eight to 10,000 units of COVID convalescent plasma. So think about that, taking the plasma out of thousands of people and having it available to potentially transfuse into those who are really sick with COVID as using the natural antibodies that have been developed by people to treat other Americans, other human beings. Now, that's been supplanted, of course, by the pharmaceutical companies who've made monoclonal antibodies, but at the time, we didn't have any. So being able to do that and not, not only getting eight to 10,000, actually getting 12,000 in about a, a four-month period. Mm-hmm. Expanding telehealth services... The amount of care that we're delivering using telehealth before the pandemic was much less than 1% of our total uh, amount of services. Early on in the pandemic, 50% of our services were being provided by telehealth. So that involves, of course, leading a backbone. What's your IT infrastructure? What's your bandwidth? What's the right equipment to be able to do all those things? So just all of those things to very rapidly think through, deploy and support um, the, the actions of the organization. The bottom line is, I think the, the Defense Health Agency proved that it could provide powerful support, data, system structure at the speed of relevance. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, it took us from a, gosh, I don't know if senior leaders in the Department of Defense or the American public can trust the Defense Health Agency. So pre-pandemic, I think that's a reasonable question. But post-pandemic, I think the agency has demonstrated that it is a trustworthy organization and can deliver what the department, what the American people needed to do.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I wanna take a moment to drill down a little bit in ter- terms of delivery, sir. And would you elaborate a little bit more on what went into conducting the COVID-19 and subvariant vaccine delivery system worldwide and, and the role that DHA played in doing
2: that? Yeah, so amongst the, the other um, states, territories, et cetera, the Department of Defense was asked to, to provide a plan of how we intended to do it. So, One of the great things about the Department of Defense is we're good at planning. So we brought together uh, about 75 people or so who are the, no kidding, day to day, we're gonna develop a plan. And over the course of about a month to, to maybe six weeks or so, this small but powerful group in this operational planning team came up with a methodology to prioritize who would be vaccinated in what order And then the the logistics work that goes behind it, how do you get the right vaccine at the right place at the right time, knowing that at least initially in the vaccine response for the United States, there was gonna be limited supplies. So then how do you get it there? And oh, by the way, how do you make sure that you don't waste any of it? that this really, really ultra-cold level of vaccine, how do you make sure you have the right freezing systems? And once you get it out, it can only be out for a very, very short amount of time. So how do you make sure you have the right people to give the vaccine? How do you make sure you have the right people there to, to receive the vaccine? And how do you communicate that all through? So over a very short period of time, developed a, an intricate plan that led to the Department of Defense using all of our vaccine that we had for the first six months almost immediately mm. in the right order with the priority beginning on December uh, 14th, 2020, until there, there was plenty of vaccine for, for anyone. But the thing that I'm most proud of, in addition to doing it against that priority, our level of waste was incredibly small. I mean, it's in the, in the giving of hundreds of thousands of doses we're talking about the wasting of dozens of doses it was incredible to watch this planning team and then turn that plan into an action
1: mm, that's great you know earlier general place you mentioned that the pandemic coincided also with the continuing rollout of the new electronic health record for your for DOD uh, MHS genesis um, i was hoping you could give us uh, an update on that rollout and more importantly what lessons have been learned and what's next
2: Uh, Yeah, we're about two-thirds of the way done with our rollout, and we'll continue it next year. In fact, we are on schedule, we are on budget to finish our rollout, in fact, a little bit early, but but next calendar year, we'll be done with it. We finished a couple of waves this fall. We'll have here in in January of 2023, we'll do our Portsmouth rollout and we'll do our Fort Drum rollout. And those are just the names from, there's multiple clinics, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, that go with each of those waves. And in the the National Capital area, Walter Reed, et cetera, uh, probably March or so of uh, of 2023. But the, the great thing about transitioning an IT system is those who are part of the process and those who are beginning the process understand the value of utilizing technology. So as I mentioned, we went from an organization that was rarely using any sort of telehealth capability to one that was embracing telehealth. Well, our new commercial off-the-shelf electronic medical record is a technological improvement, and by that I mean a markedly technological improvement to what we had before. So understanding what we needed to do and the value that was going to come with it enabled both our headquarters staff and each of the, the, the hospitals, the, the medical centers, the clinics, et cetera, to embrace it. And we found ways, even when travel couldn't be done, so how do you do virtual education courses real-time using our systems? And how do you troubleshoot them from a distance as opposed to troubleshooting them from on-site? So the great thing that we learned from the pandemic is that there are many things that we can use these health IT systems for to include our Our educational systems and be just as effective just as useful as we were before so now what can this this valuable new program that we have is there is there anything else they can do well one of the things that that we uh, cooperated and collaborated with uh, health and human services was our request in the building of this commercial off the shelf because we do mass vaccinations very frequently for our service members. Our annual flu drives are a good example of it, where we we deliver about three million doses of influenza vaccine on our installations every year. Well, so we asked for that module. Well, the, the vendor built that module for us, but when it came time for mass vaccinations across America, then that module was shared with multiple other people, multiple other vendors with the idea that this is good for American people. In fact, this is good for the global community. And this is how a system can be done at echelon to provide significant improvements in the way that we do vaccinations. Mm-hmm. So all of this, all of it, is how do we use technology? How do we use this system? How can we best support ourselves and support the warfighters fighters wherever they might be, here in America or anywhere in the operational force? And And the great news is, as I mentioned before, we are on time, we are on budget, we are on schedule to deliver this massive improvement to our system.
1: Wow, those are three criteria you want in a, in a systems uh, implementation, so that's that's yeah. wonderful. You know, so you mentioned telehealth a number of times. I don't know if you have anything else to elaborate on, but I was just wondering, is there anything you'd like to share with us around the impact telehealth and virtual uh, platforms are playing in transforming how care is delivered
2: across your system? Sure, one of the advantages, in and believe me that the only winner really in this global pandemic is medicine because we've learned a whole lot of things. An enormous tragedy in our hometowns, in our families, as Americans and as partners and allies around the world. Huge tragedy. But there are some wins from a medical perspective. And one of them is people are more comfortable in the virtual space for their health care. Now, the younger you are, probably the more comfortable you are with it. But the level of comfort that our beneficiaries have just in the military health system is enormously higher today than it was when I became the DHA director in, in the fall of 2019. So I, I see that as improvement. I see the pressure that came from the pandemic to make us build better tools. And a good example of that is the way that we're integrated now in support from our medical centers to our smaller, what we would call rural hospitals or uh, small hospitals that don't necessarily have as much of a capacity for critical care capability, they're aligned using technology with our intensivists, our our ICU teams, our ICU nurses, our ICU physicians, et cetera, at some of our major medical centers. So that there's a little bit of a support system to enable them, yes, you can be comfortable with this. No, you shouldn't be comfortable with this. You need to start thinking about transferring that patient to a higher echelon of care. So the way that we're integrated longitudinally across the system using technology. The way that we've done home telemonitoring, the COVID positive patients for the longest time were staying in the hospitals for for extended periods of time in large part because they would have this unusual drop in their oxygen saturation levels that we really couldn't explain. And we didn't feel comfortable letting people go home when that was happening. But if you have home telemonitoring and have moment by moment understanding of what's happening with all of their vital signs to include how well they're oxygenating, and you have the tools at their house to be able to help them over the phone with how that goes, then you can get people out of the, the hospital setting, which with exception of that's where all the, the people can direct really important care is. But if, if it's really limited in, in the interaction of the staff and it's mostly from an observational status, then how can you change the observational status to at-home observation as opposed to uh, in the hospital? And then how can you communicate better? How can we use our system provider-to-provider, provider, provider advice line? So not just in the ICUs, but in our outpatient cares, we've got apps for that. We've developed apps for our patients. Um, probably the, the most commonly talked about these days are, are ways that we can support the reproductive healthcare needs of our women. Are we providing the systems that they need at our location? And if not at our location, how can we use, how can we deliver that using technology? How can we use it for our own our own staff? We have apps for the antimicrobial stewardship. In other words, where, where's hand washing the most appropriate time? Where's antibiotic use the most important time? If antibiotic use, what choice of antibiotics and why? And that internal application system so that we know that our clinicians have access to the most reliable information to be able to make those clinical decision making. So just the explosion yeah. of the use of technology, integrated technology for our leaders, for our staff, and then most importantly, in support of our patients.
1: That's excellent, sir. So, you know, I was wondering, let's uh, switch gears towards readiness. That's one of the major requirements uh, for your efforts at uh, DHA. And I'm wondering if you could provide us some examples of how force readiness is
2: or will be enhanced. Well, the, the unique role of this agency as a medical combat support agency is unusual Uh, to say the least. We've never had a medical combat support agency until the Defense Health Agency became one. So some of it is, you know, the learning phase. I mentioned, I think a few minutes ago, going from a relatively immature organization to a mature organization. In order to do that, you have to understand what a combat support agency does. And then from your level of subject matter expertise, how does it flow into it? So combat support agency is an agency that supports the combatant commands. So whether that be the geographical combatant commands, like CENTCOM or or UCOM, EuropeanCOM, or Indo-PACOM, et cetera. What are the the unique needs of those command teams and those geographical areas of responsibility? And from a medical perspective, what can we provide from a trained and medical force? How do we provide operational blood uh, services to them? What's the right operational medical record? What's the right uh, operational medical logistics, et cetera, et cetera. How do we think through that? But in most respects, what is it that they think they want And how do we provide that service to them? Secondarily, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Space Force, in some cases the Coast Guard, are the force providers, right? They send the soldiers and sailors, airmen, Marines, et cetera, to those locations. Well, how do we provide the best trained and ready medical forces within that system? And and how do we partner with each of the, the military departments and the military services to enable that to happen? And then globally, how do we put that all in a big you know, soup kettle and mix it all together such that the soup that comes out of it meets all aspects of support to the COCOMs, support to the services, and then ultimately support to the Secretary of Defense across all elements of his responsibilities. So no matter what happens, the medical system is prepared to support the needs of the Department of Defense. And, And so we think through that. And great examples from an operational sphere are infectious diseases. We don't We don't have a lot of trouble with Ebola in America. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of trouble with dengue fever or Mpox, the new name for monkeypox. We don't have a lot of trouble with that in large part because of the way our system works and we identify those threats in those geographical COCOM areas and provide support to them, partner with partner nations in those areas. To prevent bad things from happening, and in particular, from bad things happening in America. So that's how the Combat Support Agency functions, and that's how we support the services and the COCOMs.
1: So, you know, I, I was wondering uh, before we get into some of the uh, research component of your portfolio, I was wondering um, how is DHA pur- pursuing a patient-centered approach to health and and care within the military health system, and perhaps you could outline some examples.
2: Sure. It gets back to the priorities. As I mentioned, the, the third priority is uh, satisfied patients. Do they feel fortunate? Our patients, they feel fortunate that they receive their care in the military health system? And in, by and large, by getting their care, we are part of an enabling system, a support system, you might say, a, a combat support system even. But do we enable them to achieve the goals that they have, whether it's a service member, family members, whoever it is, are we part of the enabling for them? And then if that's the case, then do they think we as a provider, do they think me as a surgeon, do they think me as a nurse, do they think me as a as a pharmacy technician, do they think me of whatever my role is, that I'm interested in them, that what I'm doing isn't self-serving, it's patient-serving, and does that come across in the interactions that we have with them? And then by doing that, how are we thinking it through? I mentioned a little bit earlier the standardization of our patient-facing administrative functions as an example of when I enroll, is it easier for me as a staff member or is it easier for me as a patient in the enrollment part? And do I feel it as a patient? When it comes time to me to get an appointment in the network outside the installation, because that capability just doesn't exist on the installation, does it feel real to me that someone cares about how that process works for me and they've done everything they can to make it as simple and understandable, but no simpler, so that ultimately that interaction with the the network provider, whoever it happens to be, goes great. And that information flows back to the system that collects all the information about me. So I'm not the courier of all that information that that my provider team, when I get back, they don't ask me, hey, how did it go? What did he say? But the information is right there for them. And then we can have a substantive discussion once I go back to see my primary care team about what happened in that, that arrangement downtown, that the system cares about them. That's what patient-centered means to me, and I, and I think we're on a, on a great pathway to achieving that.
1: How is the defense health agency changing the way DOD delivers healthcare? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
0: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency, DHA. So, sir, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the great work and many successes in brain health efforts. But one thing that's noted is it's somewhat disjointed across the department. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about the Warfighter Brain Health Initiative and how does it seek to address Brain exposure with the goal of optimizing brain health and countering
2: TBI. Yeah, sure. It, it, an important question to to everyone in the Department of Defense. Certainly, the senior leaders of the Department of Defense. I, I think most people know the the signature wounds of the of the last twenty years of conflict have been. Uh, traumatic brain injuries mild moderate severe etc and and recognizing that problem in all kinds of different efforts along the way to to try to make it better led us to the idea that well if you're really interested in it then you have to have some sort of framework some sort of process with perhaps multiple lines of efforts to to measure where you are and where you want to to go so most recently as i th- and I think your question implies, the department has uh, put our, our emphasis behind warfighter brain health with multiple foci, the first of which, of course, is to, to prevent any sort of brain injury. But if brain injury happens, to be able to detect it as quickly as possible, and then after detection of it, develop the, the treatment modalities, the treatment algorithms that either mitigates or best case eliminates any sort of long-term repercussions from that that brain injury. So in all those major elements of how we're thinking it through, we've put different elements uh, of of support to it. Now, from the Defense Health Agency, we're responsible for the Defense Intrepid Spirit Network. And that's led by the the NICO, our, our true center of excellence, so the National Intrepid Center of Excellence for Brain Health, here in the Bethesda campus in DC, where we are in partner with academics, we're partners with universities, we're partners with industry for all elements of that, but in particular on the research elements of what happens to the brain and what happens when you give therapies to it. But the new part for us and how we support Warfighter Brain Health is standardizing the process against all of these intrepid spirit networks. So whether that, that location is at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, or Camp Lejeune, also in North Carolina, or uh, Eglin Air Force Base, or at Fort Carson, Colorado, or out in Hawaii, we have huge troop concentrations where we're more likely to see those potential brain injuries. And so how are we standardizing the evaluation of the individual service member's brain and how it works before potential injury? How do we measure it during potential injury and after diagnosis, but then during therapy? And then where do we see that we're making improvements iteratively along the way? How do we rapidly utilize those things that appear to be great innovations? Uh, and where do we have our, our zest, our thrill of continuous process improvement for continuing to make it better? But it's all within this umbrella of the, the Warfighter Brain Initiative, uh, as as you mentioned.
1: What has DHA done in the realm of education and training during your tenure,
2: how has it expanded and who do you help? Thanks, a huge mission education-wise. If I could just perhaps give you some numbers or set some, some construct. Um, just within our part of the portfolio, so getting away from the Uniform Services University and, and all that they do for a medical school, a graduate nursing school, a postgraduate dental school, and a allied health uh, school, so, so they do that. But for us, we have two major parts of it. The Medical Education and Training Campus, which is a largely enlisted-based education campus with 16,500 graduates a year, about two-thirds of them in clinical and about one-third of them in clinical administration. So think logistics or medical equipment management or medical administration, et cetera, along the way, but two-thirds of them in clinicians. So their phase one is at the schoolhouse. Phase two, so it's the -the on-the-job clinical training. So say I'm an an operating room technician. I learn how to do it. I learn how to scrub. I learn the names of the equipment. I do notional work at the schoolhouse. And then I do it for real, under supervision and on-the-job training out inside the field, inside of our our hospitals. Similarly, we manage uh, uh, dozens of graduate medical education program systems. All told, we graduate about, Twelve hundred—that's one thousand two hundred—new, fully trained physicians from our programs every single year, and they could be surgeons or internists or family physicians or radiologists or preventive medicine, et cetera. So, twelve hundred of them. So, first is integrating all of those things, but in particular in the medical education and training campus, partnering with huge numbers of educational institutions—eighty-nine, in fact, different educational institutions—with. 350 or more master's degree programs and and almost 900 bachelor's degree programs it's just a huge amount of partnerships to make sure that in that education system we know what we're doing and we're and we're doing it against that edu- educational uh, framework and then second as we've transitioned from that didactic lecture um, sort of learning the the names of stuff in the clinical environment the partnership between the schoolhouse and the individual hospitals and medical centers where that phase two program, and how we're measuring the effectiveness of that phase one program at the phase two site, and how we're measuring the the effectiveness of the training that on the job training that happens at the phase two site by wherever their first duty station is. Uh, That's been improved. And then third, how do we then transition during the the pandemic for optimizing what can be done in a virtual environment to what must be done in a face-to-face? And how do we provide no kidding feedback to the students? How do we providing feedback to the instructors for what's working for each of them and then integrate it across all aspects of that system? So I'm proud of where we are. I, I know that like any educational system of in particular the size and complexity of, of what we have and oh, by the way, the the, the <laughs> Department of Defense or the DHA Medical Education and Training Campus is the largest standalone Medical education campus in the United States. So, so how do we how do we continuously improve the systems that we have through that entire um, continuum of educational process?
1: General Place, you've led DHA through both a tumultuous and transformative period, marked by, as you said earlier, the global pandemic and the maturation of the DHA structure and system. How? challenging was this time for your agency? And are there any leadership lessons you'd like to
2: share with us? It comes to the territory. I mean, I mentioned the size and complexity of the organization. It, it has to be challenging or it's not worth doing. I mean, it's, it's the very nature of who we are and what we do. So, so sure, it's been challenging. I'm, I'm not sure that it's been more challenging than any other time in American history because there's so much that's asked of the Department of Defense. So I want to put it in a little bit of perspective. I don't, I don't think that I've been particularly unique or the agency is particularly unique. These challenges come to major elements of the Department of Defense all the time. Mm-hmm. The beauty of it is for the American people is that we are blessed with people who who care so much about the American way of life and protecting it through the Department of Defense, that I think we start to take for granted just how complicated and complex it is. And yet, we have we have great parts of the organization that have that have been successful. For me, the thing that that I think has been the most challenging, and the thing that I think uh, the the organization has been most successful in, is the concept of the balance between standardization and innovation, mm-hmm. with the idea that. That if you don't standardize process to begin with and then measure the effectiveness of that process, it's difficult to know if your innovations are actually happening or helping. And so what are the outcomes that you want? What are the most important things? How have we standardized the administrative process? How have we standardized the clinical support process? And then, what are the outcomes that, that come from that? And then, typically from the ground up, these are where the great ideas come from, from those who are actually doing that on the ground work is, hey, DHA director, we think we can do that better. Okay, how? We think it looks like that. Great, let's help you flesh that out a little bit more so that your great idea has potential to be inculcated across the entire organization. And then doing that, first in a targeted location or perhaps a couple of different targeted locations to make sure it's not personality dependent on the, the person who thought it up, but can it be successful, and if successful, don't limit it to that particular area. Rapidly advance that innovation and replace the old standardized methodology with a new standardized methodology that will be good for our system. So understanding the benefit of both standardization and innovation, but having a system that allows them to coexist in a mutually beneficial way that drives improvement in your system. That's a challenge for any, because, because here's the thing. If you're the one who who invented a way of doing things, a non-standardized, then you've already put your, your blood, sweat, tears, mm-hmm. your energy into it. And for an organization to say, hey, thanks for that, but we're going to do it a different way is potentially emotionally devastating. Yeah. So how do you consider all the work that went in before that led to perhaps non-standardized methodology, but people who cared enough about the system to develop it? And how do you take their feedback in particular into this, this innovative way and make sure that wh- whatever local innovations happened are considered in the system-wide standardization so that everyone feels valued. Mm. Balancing that is probably the biggest challenge in an organization in excess of uh, you know 125,000 people.
1: That's wonderful perspective, sir. Um, as you reflect on your tenure leading DHA, perhaps you could share with us what are you most proud of during your time there?
2: I'm proud of the people. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm proud of. But in addition to the people, it's the things that the people of the agency have, have accomplished. So the the world, the DHA, faced a global pandemic, and and because of their adaptability, their resiliency, their understanding of the speed of relevance relevance, we are better prepared uh, to support COCOMs and the services. The the fact that we were likely not organized in the most effective way, that that they've taken this opportunity, this once-in-a-generation opportunity to optimize the way that we're organized in a, I'm doing air quotes here that you can't see, in a merger (laughs) of Air Force medicine, Navy medicine, and Army medicine in a way that optimizes the effectiveness through the balance of that standardization and innovation that I just mentioned. That we're able to transition more than 700 brick and mortar healthcare facilities from each of the different services into the DHA. And, And most importantly, as I also mentioned before, that largest transition of civilian workforce since the creation of the Air Force in 1947, individually caring for those 50,000 employees who transitioned into, into the DHA. And oh, by the way, along the way, 64 billion, that's with a B, $64 billion worth of real property that came off of property books and the, each of the services into the agency. And then finally, the, the rollout on time, on budget, of our, our new electronic health record. Put all that together, this is an incredible team, incredible people who can get stuff done. General
1: Place, one last question. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service or perhaps medicine or ideally both?
2: Yeah, I guess that's a good reflective question for me as I'm transitioning away from this system. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the most important thing is they should be asking themselves, what do they want to accomplish professionally? What do they want their life to be? What do they want their legacy to be, both personally and professionally? And if they've thought about it, then whatever it is that they think that they want to do, how is their choice of where they're going to do it help them to be able to do that? And I think that that anyone who's considering working in medicine, in particular, considering potentially working in military medicine, will see the incredible value of the mission that we support. There is no greater privilege as a healthcare uh, person to support the young men and women of America who have voluntarily decided to defend the American American way of life, up to and potentially including the giving of their own life. And to be able to say, these are the people that we care for, and these are the people that we're going to make a difference for, is is the privilege of a lifetime. And uh, as I transition away from the agency and I transition into uh, the next chapter of my life, I will dearly miss the people that I've been, uh, use the word again, privileged to work with who are making a difference every single day. Well,
1: that's great advice, sir. I want to thank you for sharing. But more importantly today, I want to thank you for joining us and spending some time with us to, to kind of look at the, the important mission, the important work you've, you've accomplished and achieved for DHA. But more importantly, sir, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
2: Uh, you're welcome. It, it, truly, it's been my pleasure um, and if I say it too many times, and I'm sorry about that, but it's been the privilege of my lifetime. So thanks for having me on and, and allowing me to have this discussion with you.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Lieutenant General Ronald Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at iTunes or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan and thanks for joining us.
0: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to transform public services delivery by Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.